1609, King Philip III of Spain signed an edict to expel a community known as the Moriscos from the Iberian Peninsula. The Moriscos were Muslims forcibly converted to Christianity during the 16th century after Christian kingdoms displaced the last remaining Muslim rulers in Iberia. The persecution and erasure of the Moriscos following the Reconquista are well documented in the historiography, where alongside Iberian Jews, they appear as victims of the fall of Islamic al-Andalus. But in this episode of Ottoman History Podcast, we'll explore what these events look like through the eyes of the Moriscos themselves and study their roles as political actors in the momentous political shifts of the 16th century. In this conversation with Maite Green Mercado about her book, Visions of Deliverance, we discuss the circulation of Muslim and crypto-Muslim apocalyptic texts, known as hofores, and how these texts were catalysts for Morisco political mobilization against the Spanish crown. We chart formal and informal networks of communication between Moriscos, the Ottoman Empire, and the broader Mediterranean world. And we reflect on the challenges and benefits of using biased sources like the records of the Inquisition alongside other material. I'm Brittany White. Stay tuned. So thank you for spending some time with us today to talk about your book, Visions of Deliverance. Just tell us a little bit about who the Moriscos are, um, and particularly about the diversity of political thought, language, and religious practices within the community. We can really begin to talk about Moriscos in the 16th century, to refer to these Iberian Muslims who were forced to convert to Catholicism in the first couple of decades of the 16th century. So um, we can't really talk about a single Morisco community, but rather we can think about Moriscos whose culture, language, religious practices varied significantly. And it was mainly according to geography and uh, the history of Muslims and Muslim-Christian interactions in Iberia since the Middle Ages. And so, for example, uh, we know that due to their close contact uh, with Christians, Mudejars and Mudejars were uh, these Muslims living under Christian rule in Castile, in the Kingdom of Castile, had, for example, adopted the language of their neighbors, their Christian neighbors. And um, after the forced conversions of these Muslims in Castile, and this happened um, around 1501, these Moriscos, these former Muslims now known as Moriscos, spoke like Christians, dressed like Christians, um, etc. And we see the same uh, type of phenomenon in the Kingdom of Aragon in, the, in northern Iberia. But then we have other uh, Moriscos, for example, those in Granada, which was, as you know, the last Muslim kingdom in the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, these new Christians and these Christ new Christians were also forcibly baptized in 1501. Uh, but these uh, new Christians spoke Arabic and they mm. dressed in a manner that was different from the inhabitants of Castile or other Moriscos in other parts of the peninsula. And we have a similar phenomenon uh, in the Kingdom of Valencia, 
where Moriscos continued to speak Arabic after the forced, forced conversions. And these Muslims were forced to be baptized around 1519, 1521. And they lived in separate rural communities that were isolated from uh, other Christians, and therefore they were able to preserve their language and cultural practices, etc. When it comes to religious practices, we also have the same kind of diversity. So we have some Moriscos who converted to uh, Catholicism and lived as Christians. Um, mm -hmm. And then we have others who um, continued practicing Islam in secret. And then among those Moriscos who were Christians, there are also varying levels of knowledge of uh, religion. And the same can be said for those crypto-Muslims. We know, for example, that the Granadan Moriscos and likely the Valencian Moriscos who still spoke Arabic had a deeper knowledge of Islam mm. than uh, perhaps crypto-Muslims in Castile or Aragon who did not have access to the language of religious texts. And these religious texts were written in Aljamiado? Not all of them. Um, okay. So the Moriscos of Granada and Valencia uh, read Arabic and wrote Arabic. Um, and so we find Morisco texts or texts produced during the Morisco period that were in Arabic. And then the Aljamiado phenomenon, which is the use of Arabic characters to render uh, Romance languages, was mainly used by uh, Mudejars and Moriscos in Castile and in Aragon. You say that your, your book does span the um, 16th century, um, and it's it's a history of Moriscos through an apocalyptic lens. And you look at Morisco prognosticative texts or Morisco prophecies called hofores. They're religious texts. But you argue that they're also tied to political discourse, rebellion, and upheaval. Can you give us an example of one of those apocalyptic prophecies? I should say first that these texts that I'm referring to were written, uh, the hofores were written in aljamiado. Castilian language or Aragonese using uh, Arabic characters, although we have the same prophecies also written in Arabic, and uh, we find them in Valencia and, and Granada. And, um, and so the Moriscos drew both from Christian apocalyptic texts, medieval Christian apocalyptic mm -hmm. texts, and also from Islamic apocalyptic texts. So some of these hofores, for example, are uh, written as if they were hadiths, uh, sayings, actions, act, uh, uh, tacit approvals of the prophet, and uh, they predict what will happen at the end of time. So an example of one of these apocalyptic hadiths is the prophet one day is sitting with his companions and one of the companions asks the prophet what will happen at the end of times. The prophet then begins to weep um, and the texts are very descriptive. The prophet uh, wets his beard with his wow. tears talking about what will happen at the end of times. And they ask the prophet, why are you crying? And he says something like, I'm crying because the Lord has shown me an island called Andalusia, which will be the last island 
where uh, which will be populated by Islam and the first place where Islam will be banished. Wow, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's really beautiful and really yeah, beautiful. Uh, emotional, no? Yeah. And then the Prophet also describes uh, that those inhabitants of the Iberian Peninsula are the Ghuraba, or the strangers of his community. And um, at times he says that uh, they have forsaken the reading of the Quran, and that's why uh, God is punishing them. And so this is one type of uh, hofor that we find. Mm -hmm. uh, in other texts, for example, Christian renditions or adaptations of medieval Christian apocalyptic texts, we have, for example, uh, the case of French Franciscan uh, prophet John of Rupasissa, and his prophecy, uh, Vade Mecum in Tribulatione, where uh, the Moriscos take this text and read the predictions about the destruction of the church and uh, the prediction of, predictions about the punishments of uh, Christians in a crypto-Muslim light, if you will. Okay. And these are really interesting texts because God punishes the church and punishes Christians at the hands of Antichrist, but this Antichrist is represented as a Muslim Mahdi or as a Muslim power. Interesting. And so I, I have to imagine that the Castilian kingdom is, doesn't take too kindly <laughs> to, these, uh, to the circulation of these hofores. Can you tell me a little bit about how um, they're being perceived by the Christian rulers of, of this kingdom? So we uh, Christians uh, know about these Morisco texts. They are aware that Moriscos circulate these texts. And in fact, there is a chronicle of the expulsion that talks about how Moriscos used to read the prophecies of pseudo-prophecies of St. Isidore of, of Seville, for example, but that they misunderstood these prophecies, um, which is really interesting. But one of the things that we see throughout the 16th century is that Catholic authorities begin to equate the reading of these texts with not only Morisco apostasy, so that the, these are signs that the Moriscos have returned to their Muslim faith. But as I discuss in the text, they begin to view these as political texts that Moriscos are using to galvanize support for insurrections against the Catholic authorities, royal authorities, and also against the Inquisition. A lot of um, the news that we have about these texts and how they circulated uh, among the Moriscos is through uh, Inquisition sources, okay. testimonies that Moriscos give that mention these texts. But as I just described, we also have the physical uh, texts that were written in Aljamiado. So um, some of these texts lead to the Abu Harras rebellion. Can you tell us what the rebellion is and, and how it came about and what were the social and political implications um, afterwards? So the Alpujarras revolt in some chronicles, it's talked about as the War of Granada, the Second War of Granada, took place between 1568 and 1570. It was a, a very bloody two-year insurrection mounted by Moriscos in the Kingdom of Granada as a result of or as a response to a series of measures that were passed 
in 1567 that sought to curb or to erase Morisco cultural signs such as the use of Arabic language, dress, uh, baths, Morisco music, and all of the signs that were somehow associated by the Catholic authorities with an adherence to uh, the Muslim religion. But this was not the only thing that Moriscos were responding to. Moriscos were also responding to the confiscation of lands that was taking place in Granada at the time. Also, the fact that Moriscos could not bear, no longer bear arms. And so there were a series of restrictions against the Morisco population in the kingdom of Granada. And uh, the Moriscos interpreted these as the, the Catholic King uh, Philip II um, breaking pacts that had been established with the Morisco community and therefore as an illegitimate ruler uh, wow. that and and therefore they needed to respond to that. And so they fought for two years and during this revolt, uh, we know both through Christian sources, through chronicles, of the rebellion, and also through testimonies, for example, uh, Morisco testimonies before the Inquisition, and we also have texts, that Moriscos circulated these apocalyptic texts. And this was, on the one hand, an effort on the part of the Morisco elites that were trying to uh, put together the revolt, and in collaboration with uh, what are known as al-Faqis, or the religious leaders of the crypto-Muslim community. And we know about the ways in which these texts circulated. So some testimonies talk about how Moriscos would gather and read these texts out loud oh, wow. before mm-hmm. and during the rebellion. Wow. Which is, which is really... Uh, amazing yeah. uh, information that we have about the circulation of knowledge during this period. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that these texts were deployed, particularly in moments when Moriscos, some groups of Moriscos uh, were not ready to engage in fighting, mm-hmm. be, whether it was because they were more vulnerable, because they didn't believe in the cause. And so uh, the circulation of these texts also speak to us about the different Morisco communities that I talked about before, and also different political agendas, and also fractures within the Morisco community. And one of the things that these texts try to do is to recreate a Muslim community in the Mm -hmm. Iberian Peninsula. These texts that were circulated during the war predicted that Muslim Mediterranean powers would come to the Iberian Peninsula and help Moriscos recover the land. And so the aim of these texts or the political vision behind these texts was the restoration of Islam in the Iberian Peninsula. Before we go on to talk about how um, the Morisco community was kind of connected to the wider Mediterranean world, I have to ask, do you have a favorite hofor? That, oh, it's Just very difficult. It's very, very <laughs> difficult to to say because I really do love 
the one the hofor that i was mentioning uh be earlier about muhammad weeping uh speaking to his companions and weeping for the morisco community um the way that the morisco see community sees itself in these texts is uh devastating but at the same time sort of reflects the political agency of uh, this community. I also really uh, love, and this one is more connected to the Mediterranean, an Alhamiado text that is known as the Alwasia del Gran Turco, uh, which is a, a text that at first hand doesn't seem to be an apocalyptic text, mm -hmm. but it is a text that is written purportedly by uh, the Ottoman Sultan Mehmet II, and it is presented as a mirror for princes, and it is addressed to one of the Sultan's son. And it talks about what it means to be a good ruler. Mm -hmm. um, and in it, we see reflected both Ottoman political principles but also ideal, Morisco ideals for what a good uh, ruler is. And so I, I'm really, really interested in that text because of the different uh, layers that, uh, that it expresses, both the religious dimension and apocalyptic dimension and also the political dimension. In, in my work, uh, one of the things that I tried to do, and this is one of the reasons why I'm so interested in apocalyptic texts is to try to recover a Morisco political culture, which is something that we know about, but looking at the texts and how they circulated allows us to see sort of the production uh, and the process of production and circulation of political ideas. But yes, I love that prophecy about the prophet weeping. Yeah, it was beautiful. I also love the way in which Moriscos adapt, take Christian texts and mm -hmm. re-elaborate them to reflect their own concerns. Uh, so how they reread uh, these texts uh, that predict punishment of uh, Christians in Iberia, they reflect the destruction of Spain, and it also reflects a lot of Morisco agency in uh, in these texts. So I like all of them, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, <they're laughs> I can't pick one book. or the other. I should say, though, that these texts are very cryptic. They're very mm. difficult to read. And in fact, they're very difficult to translate. Because even in the Spanish original or the Aljamiado original, there are many things that are very unclear. But this is true with all apocalyptic texts mm -hmm. from all traditions, whether they are written in Latin or in Castilian or even in Arabic. There's always this level of um, ambiguity that mm -hmm. the apocalyptic texts leave. They leave enough room for interpretation, multiple levels of interpretation, and they want to be deliberately ambiguous. And that becomes very difficult when you're trying to translate these texts. I'm sure. So when you're in the archive, are you you're reading, I guess, 16th century Spanish and sometimes in an Arabic in an Arabic script and then deciphering these symbols in kind of very ambiguous language at the same time? Yes, we are very lucky, I should say, that today, not when I started doing research for my dissertation, uh, that 
ended up uh, being this book. But today, most if not all of these texts uh, have been published. I do consult uh, these manuscripts in libraries in Spain. There's one in uh, one of the series of texts also at the Bibliothèque Nacional in Paris, and they are written in Aljamiado. Um, and so I am reading these uh, Aragonese uh, or Castilian texts that have a very strong Aragonese uh, flavor written in Arabic script, but also these texts incorporate a lot of Arabic words. So Interesting. all words that are related to religion, to God, to the prophet, to angels, to prayer, these are all these words are all left in Arabic or at least a Hispanized Arabic. Or an Arabized Spanish, I suppose uh -huh. you can also say. <laughs> it's a two-way street. Um, yeah. But they, so, so they are written in Aljamiado. And then uh, we have also found, uh, and these are appended to Inquisition sources, Arabic versions of these Hofores as well. We have the texts on the one hand. And on the other hand, one of the things that I tried to do was see how these texts were circulating by looking at uh, testimonies uh, in Inquisition sources. So Morisco, we hear in the voices of Moriscos these texts, Aljamiado texts that are repeated uh, before the Inquisitors, sometimes under torture, sometimes voluntarily. But we can hear through these Inquisition texts the, the voices of Moriscos. Now, were these texts, when they were recited, were there, was there like a poetic or, I guess, song element to it? Or were they read like any other literature? So some are, some are not. Okay. So some are delivered as uh, sermon, it, sermons during Friday prayer. And they read a little bit like sermons. And sometimes they read a little bit like apocalyptic hadiths in, in Arabic. And then some are actually in verse form. And so we have them in Arabic uh, verse form as well. And so they're, they're very varied texts as well. And I think that really reflects the Moriscos and who they were and their diversity yeah. as well. I want to go back to Al Wasir del Gran Turco. Um, could you explain what what that specific hofor is and and how it shows a, a connectedness to the wider uh, Mediterranean world at the time? So this is an Aljamiado text. It is known as the Wasia or will, you know, of the Grand Turk or the Great Turk. It was uh, purportedly penned by the Ottoman Sultan Mehmed II. As I mentioned before, it is framed as a mirror for princes. It is addressed to one of the sultan's son. We don't know which son. And we know little about who copied uh, this text. So we don't really know a lot about the Aljamiado version of this text. We, the text itself alleges that it was drawn from the copy, a copy that this viceroy of Sicily, uh, Don Lope Jimenez de Urrea, possessed, and uh, he supposedly sent this text to his wife who was living in Spain at the time. This is what the text, sort of the, the 
preamble of the text uh, tells us. We don't have any more information. And in fact, when you, when you look at the purported date of this text, it is unlikely that Don Lope Jimenez de Urrea might have had this text. We don't really uh, know too much about it. But in any case, the text begins by the Sultan sort of uh, enumerating the principles of good governance that mm -hmm. a good ruler should exercise. And what I find more most interesting in, in this text is that some of those principles that are enumerated are directly of interest to the Moriscos. So, for example, there is this idea that a good ruler should not force his subjects to convert. Okay. Oh. And this is very Perfect. directly yeah. <laughs> related <laughs> to the experience of Moriscos. But it, is, but it is really interesting because it's put in the mouth of the Ottoman Sultan, mm -hmm. Mehmed II, the conqueror, right? And um, another one is, for example, this idea that a ruler should not break pacts with his subjects, uh, pacts that a ruler has made, that the, a ruler should not break the law Uh, if it goes against the interest of his subjects. And these were all things that when Moriscos either rebelled during the Alpujarras revolt or when they were planning to rebel, they were stating these as causes for rebellion so that this makes a legitimate ruler. Uh, this is how a legitimate ruler should behave. And if they break these pacts or they force uh, subjects to convert, then it is legitimate to rebel. And so for the purposes of my study, um, I was very interested in an apocalyptic element at the end of uh, this text. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I argue in the book that it is this apocalyptic element uh, that connects Morisco apocalyptic text to the wider Mediterranean and to a broader Mediterranean apocalyptic culture. So according to the text, Mehmed II predicts that his son will feed barley to his horse at the altar of St. Peter and Paul before being crowned in Constantinople. And I was very struck by this image of uh, the uh, Sultan feeding his horse uh, barley at the altar of St. Peter. And it took me back to an article that I had read as a graduate student uh, written by my advisor, uh, Cornell Fleischer, discussing a prognostication uh, related to Suleiman uh, the Magnificent that cites a, a Venetian source that presents Suleiman as watering and feeding his horse at the altar of St. Peter. This particular Ottoman uh, version of, uh, of the prophecy is um, recorded in an Ottoman chronicle titled Gurbetname uh, Sultan Jem, um, mm -hmm. the tale of exile of uh, Jem Sultan. And this text uh, it records uh, what are ostensibly several conversations 
that seem like a pol uh, polemical in nature between Gen Gem Sultan and Pope Innocent VIII. The text mentions this particular prophecy uh, predicting an Ottoman takeover of Rome. Okay. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is precisely what the Alhamiado text is also telling us. We don't know exactly what the chain of transmission was. So that makes it a little bit tricky to look at the, uh, at the trajectory of this prophecy between the Iberian Peninsula, Venice, and uh, Istanbul. But we do know that this text circulated among Moriscos. So this is not just a text that Moriscos copied and never read. We mm -hmm. have, for example, testimonies by Moriscos before the Inquisition that talk specifically about the Ottoman Sultan who is going to go to Rome water his horse, and then end up coming to the Iberian Peninsula, or feeding his horse in, in Rome, and then coming to the Iberian Peninsula and watering his horse in fountains in wow. the Iberian Peninsula. And so we know that Moriscos were very much aware of this, uh, this um, apocalyptic motif, and uh, they were expecting and hoping that the Ottomans would in fact come and help the Moriscos in a potential insurrection. So speaking of that, um, the communication between Morisco community and Ottomans, this is not just through like the circulation of these texts. Oftentimes uh, it seems like the Morisco community is sending unofficial emissaries yeah. um, and requesting support for their rebellions. Um, the Ottomans are also cultivating Morisco networks in Spain to destabilize the Habsburgs. Um, so there's a lot of inter-imperial intrigue, um, and you analyze that through through Alwasia del Gran Turco. Yes. I, I analyze that both through the Alwasia del Gran Turco, but also through the uses and deployment of apocalyptic prophecies in contexts where Moriscos uh, are seeking to galvanize support for a rebellion. Um, in these texts, uh, the Ottoman uh, Sultan features prominently. Um, and so these texts are also talking about how the Ottomans are going to come and help Moriscos. Um, but we also know that Moriscos were, in fact, sending people. And the people who were going to Istanbul uh, were not ordinary people. Mm -hmm. These were members of Morisco, what were recognized at the time as Morisco elites. These okay. were wealthy Moriscos. Most of these families were uh, merchants who had the means and had the connections around the Mediterranean mm -hmm. to engage in this type of communication. And so they were traveling uh, to uh, North Africa and also uh, we know that they were traveling to Istanbul and delivering letters that were basically uh, begging for the support of the Sultan um, and also promising money. They were mm. saying, you know, you are the leader of the Ummah. We are part of your Ummah. Um, it is your duty to uh, help us, but we are also prepared to furnish X amount of money for you to send men and send arms uh, so that we can uh, stage this insurrection. So they were also making uh, promises. 
And how does the Ottoman um, Empire respond to these requests? Did they do they ever they were they were they were entertaining uh, the Moriscos and Mm -hmm. they were also making promises of their own promises that we know were never uh, fulfilled and uh, that aid was never delivered. But we have to see this episode within the broader context of uh, the Ottoman Habsburg rivalry for the control of the Mediterranean. So this is not just uh, an isolated case of these crazy Moriscos who were there trying to get the support mm-hmm. of the Ottoman Sultan, but actually um, this has to be understood within this broader context. We also know, for example, that Philip II was trying to do exactly the same thing with Christian subjects of the Ottomans in the Balkans. And so this was a way in which uh, sort of a proxy war that was being fought uh, or that was being at least conceived of, even if it was never actually uh, realized, right? Mm -hmm. Even if it didn't happen, um, these strong powers in the Mediterranean were looking at the other's subject as potential allies in a proxy internal war against the enemy. But we know that uh, this never happened for the Moriscos and that they, and in fact, Moriscos were very much aware that the Ottomans might never come. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we see testimonies of Moriscos before the Inquisition where they're saying, yes, and I was telling him not to believe these stories. The Ottoman is never going to come and basically like waste his time with us. But there were (laughs) others who were saying, yes, we have these prophecies that Mm -hmm. are promising that the Ottoman Sultan is going to come. And so we need to trust in God's word. And so this is one of the ways in which these prophecies are helping to galvanize support uh, for this cause. I'll say one more thing, and it is that the Moriscos were also using apocalyptic language to communicate both with the Ottomans and also, as I discuss in in one of the chapters of the book, with other enemies of the Spanish crown, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, the French King Henry IV, Mm -hmm. um, using this language, uh, messianic language, as a political language. And so they say, it is written in our prophecies that it is you who has been chosen by God to come and aid us. So they're using this language very strategically in a political way, also to communicate both with the Ottomans and with the uh, French. So you, you've alluded to this before, but there are rifts in the Morisco community. Um, and you write about an informant named Luis Moreno. Can you tell us a little bit about, about him and his story? Yes, there were several Morisco informants. Luis Moreno wasn't the only one. Um, but these were Moriscos who at times uh, served as double agents. Mm-hmm. So they were informants uh, about the things that the Moriscos were planning to the inquisitors, and they were also informants to the Morisco communities about what the inquisitors were planning. And so they were yes. double agents uh, in a way. And Luis Moreno in particular uh, is at the center of this rebellion conspiracy that takes place after the Alpujarras revolt 
between 1573, 75, and 1580. And it is a moment when, after the Alpujarras revolt, the Moriscos are still trying to get uh, help from the Ottomans uh, to stage an insurrection, not in Granada, but rather now in Valencia and Aragon. Okay. I should say one thing, though, because you had asked me before, and I didn't answer this, about the significance of the Alpujarras revolt for the Morisco community. The Alpujarras revolt was a, a kind of watershed moment for all of the Moriscos in the Iberian Peninsula. After the rebellion, Granada and Moriscos were expelled from the Kingdom of Granada and dispersed mm. throughout the Iberian Peninsula. Most of them ended up in the Kingdom of Castile, but some of them ended up in Valencia or in Aragon. And this had a, a this was very important for, on the one hand, the religious instruction of Moriscos in Arabic and in reading the Quran, etc., the presence of these Granada mm -hmm. Moriscos, but also the, inquisi the inquisitors feared that these this Granada element would sort of destabilize uh, the Morisco communities mm. of Aragon and Valencia because they would incite these communities to rebel, okay? Mm -hmm. um, it is for this reason, and people like Luis Moreno that some scholars have doubted the veracity of this conspiracy and that believe that this was all made up by the inquisitors or that we should really be careful uh, in believing the idea that Moriscos were actually planning to rebel. But Luis Moreno, going back to him, he begins telling the inquisitors, he's a Morisco, he's a Morisco who is well-connected to the prominent Moriscos that I was talking about before, these uh, merchants and, and wealthy Moriscos. He has a lot of information about what is happening, and he begins feeding this information to the inquisitors, telling the inquisitors that the Moriscos want to rebel. As a result of uh, Luis Moreno's uh, testimonies, many of those Morisco elites were um, imprisoned by the Inquisition. And as a result of the testimonies of another Morisco who was actually making up another insurrection, some of these Morisco elites ended up being executed. And so the presence of Luis Moreno and of other uh, Morisco informants like uh, Gil Perez, which, which I discuss in one of the chapters, really tells us both about the cohesion of uh, the Morisco community, mm -hmm. but also of rifts within mm -hmm. the Morisco community. And so it, it's very interesting. Luis Moreno's case is very interesting because he ended up being tried by the Inquisition in the end and appearing in an auto de fe uh, in the 1580s. And he was actually accused of... And he confessed to living as a crypto-Muslim. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the testimonies that he's giving are very, are I argue, are reliable because he was a crypto-Muslim mm -hmm. and he knew the community well and he was well infiltrated. We don't know exactly why he was doing this. We know, for example about the other person I was mentioning, Gil Perez, 
that he was getting paid by the inquisitors to do this. So there was a financial, financial transaction there that was important to him. Luis Moreno is more, uh, it's, it's more difficult to know what his motivations were. Apparently, though, he had a very good relations with his lord, with his seigneurial lord, the, the um, owner of the lands in which he lived. And it seems that it was his lord, the one who was pushing him to give these testimonies oh, to the inquisitors, okay? So it also reflects the vulnerability that uh, these moriscos had vis-a-vis the Christian authorities, mm-hmm. you know? And so it, it, in a way, Luis Moreno provides really, really valuable information, but at the same time, he really uh, served as a, a, a good tool for the inquisitors Uh, whose aim was to break the Morisco communities from within. So ultimately, after years of rebellion and oppression, um, the Moriscos are expelled from Iberia. The the Ottomans never come, like you mentioned, um, and they're expelled in 1609. Um, so how did they understand their expulsion through this apocalyptic lens? How did this reading differ from previous apocalyptic understandings of their experiences and, and their future? When it came time to write about the experience of expulsion, Moriscos understood this pro- uh, process I suppose in a providentialist light, as they had interpreted their whole history as a community in the Iberian Peninsula, they wrote about how God had placed the idea in the heart of the Spanish king, Philip III, and in the hearts of the counselors to expel the Moriscos so that they could finally go and live as Muslims Mm. in Muslim lands. And so they interpret this expulsion in a way in a positive light, Mm -hmm. right? Not necessarily as a punishment of God, but actually as a reward that God was granting them for being steadfast in their Mm -hmm. religion and for enduring all of the um, difficulties that they had by having to live as Christians in uh, a Christian land. And so in a way it's different from the previous understandings because while the previous understandings were attempting to recreate Muslim rule in the Iberian Mm -hmm. Peninsula, now they were looking at the expulsion as God's will and Mm -hmm. as God selecting this community as their chosen ones, uh, their dear ones, right, Mm -hmm. who were going to be, and I'm going to use this with scare quotes, sort of redeemed or saved at the Mm -hmm. end of times, right? Because now they were going to go and live in uh, Muslim lands. We know, though, that that process of going and living uh, in Muslim lands was very difficult for Moriscos, Mm -hmm. right? So, um, but I, I... it's, it's really interesting the way that the community sees, continues to see itself as a community after the expulsion 
and now living in Muslim lands. Yeah, when I read that part, I thought, oh, I felt I, I, w- I knew what was going to happen. And but throughout the book, I was rooting for them regardless the entire time. And you get yeah. to the epilogue and I was like, well, that's that's a really nice way to put a silver it's, lining it's on it. It's a nice <laughs> way to put a silver lining. Exa- exactly. And I also uh, throughout while doing research and while writing uh, this book also rooted for the Moriscos and see uh, and try to really recover this agency and political culture uh, and try to stay away from characterizations of Moriscos as uh, uh, marginalized Mm. or as minor actors in the Mediterranean, but Mm -hmm. rather by recovering their their, uh, political culture, we can see how they were uh, one more actor in this Mediterranean stage. In addition to the Ahamiano text, you use um, uh, documents produced by the Inquisition, as you've mentioned, and you say that many scholars have called those sources too biased. I think in the book you use, you say that they use the term that they're rotten, that they're just spoiled and, and no good. Um, but you have a different take on this. How can historians use Inquisition documents and how can the Alhamiyalo texts and the Inquisition records kind of be read together? There is this idea, and this is interesting because it's a sort of a, a disciplinary divide between literary scholars and historians, where a lot of literary scholars have seemed or had de- have deemed uh, Inquisition sources as too biased, or they use the term uh, fuentes envenenadas, poisoned uh, sources, right? And that uh, in order to write uh, uh, the story of Moriscos, we should be very careful with using those sources because they are uh, biased, because at times they were produced uh, while Moriscos were under torture. There's a there's a broad scholarship, not just Iberian, uh, that shows very clearly how rich uh, the Inquisition uh, material is. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways in which I deal with this question of the bias in Inquisition sources is by reading them alongside other material. When I first started this research, I started from the Aljamiado texts. And one of the things that I was trying to figure out was, first of all, whether the Moriscos were aware of these texts, Mm -hmm. whether they circulated at all, in which contexts they circulated. And the Inquisition material allowed me to start tracing the circulation of these texts in the peninsula. And once I started, it was it was a, a type of work that was like looking for a needle in a haystack mm-hmm. because it was going through uh, inquisition paper after inquisition paper after dossier, trying to look for mentions of hofores, mentions oh of goodness. prophecies. Um, and so once I started identifying the the when they were mentioned, then I started being able to reconstruct the contexts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the way in which I read these texts together is by trying to see when those Alhamiado texts and how they are mentioned by Moriscos. I not only use Inquisition sources, I also use historical chronicles. 
I use diplomatic correspondence. I use other types of material that allow me to confirm uh, not only what is being said by the Inquisition sources, but mm -hmm. also what is being said in the Aljamiado texts. So, for example, a good example of the way in which I do this, I think, is what I tried to do in chapter three with this motif of the Alhuacia del Gran Turco. I begin from an Inquisition source, a Morisco testimony, repeating this idea that the Ottoman is going to go and water and feed his horse in St. Peter. From there, I move to the Aljamiado text that mentions uh, this uh, particular motif. And then I go to an Ottoman chronicle that mm -hmm. also mentions this text. And so I think it's, it's, we have to be as historians careful with the ways in which we use inquisition sources. Mm -hmm. They are by no means neutral. Um, they have some, some poison there. It is mm -hmm. true. Um, but I believe that looking at them and reading them alongside other material can help us understand all of these uh, sets of sources better. That concludes our interview with Maite Green Mercado about visions of deliverance, moriscos, and the politics of prophecy in the early modern Mediterranean. If you're looking to learn more about the Moriscos, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you'll find a quick link to the book as well as other resources in this interview's bibliography. You'll also find tons of other episodes on the Ottoman Empire in the early modern world. That's all for now. I'm Brittany White. Thanks for listening. <laughs>